Daniel chapter 9 is a text you're in right now, and we'll do a little background as we move forward. But for those of you guys that are, that are new to Apologia Church, we're doing a study, it's called Eschaton, and it has to do with the climax of history. We're really studying the whole scope of the scriptures, the Old and New Testaments. So we have 66 different books and letters before us. God's word firmly fixed forever in the heavens that will never pass away, God promises. The Bible says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus taught that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will by no means pass away. You're looking at the revelation of God in history. This is God actually condescending and actually speaking to us. And so what we're looking at in this revelation is God's plan of redemption. And it really is something that flows from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it, that's spectacular because what we're looking at is not just scattered pages and verses here or there, but a unified testimony and revelation of the living God. Now, I want you to consider for a moment that the breath that you're taking in right now is a gift from this God. That I want you to think about the fact that the roof over your heads right now is a gift from the only true and living God. The fact that we're being sucked down to our seats right now is a gift from this living God. I mean, God spoke and Saturn leapt into existence. The sun, the moon, the stars, all the creatures of the deep, all the creatures on the land, all the birds of the air and insects and creeping things, you Sorry to associate you with the creeping things, but you get my point that God creates everything in this God, the only God, the God that says he's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who is transcendent and incomprehensible. He has made himself known to us. He's spoken in history. And most specifically, Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter one says that God has spoken to us in his son. And so God has walked among us and he's revealed himself. And eschaton is about the climax of history. Now, I can't begin to unpack everything we have gone over as much as I'd love to. Okay, go over again what we've touched so far in eschaton. But let me just give you the gist. Our belief as, as Apologia Church is that Christ is the promised Messiah. That the Old Testament promised that God was going to send a Messiah who would accomplish very specific things. But in the specific things he would accomplish for forgiveness, for salvation, for eternal life, there was also the promise of a kingdom. That this Messiah wasn't just coming so that you can go to heaven one day. This Messiah was coming to wrap up, sum up, and accomplish all of God's promises pertaining to redemption that also amounted to a promise of a kingdom. And this Messiah brought the kingdom. And that kingdom is present now as a reality. And he is reigning now. He is seated now as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what we're looking at now in history is the resultant effect of God's accomplished promises in this Messiah. That Jesus came, brought the kingdom on time as promised. And that what we're looking forward to now in history as to the climax of history, where is it going, is Psalm 110 verse 1. That Jesus... Most quoted verse, by the way, in the New Testament. That's something you should pay attention to. Psalm 110, verse 1, the most quoted test, uh, a verse from the Old Testament by the New Testament authors. Paul says this, that he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated is death. We believe that Jesus 
at the end of history, is going to be seen as the victorious conquering king because of the kingdom he's brought and the transformation that's brought and the healing of the nations that that's brought. That's what we're looking forward to. So in a word, victory, not defeat. Victory in the Messiah because of what he's accomplished. Now listen, we've been going over a lot of the verses that display that victory. But I, I told you and I kept kind of prepping you for Daniel chapter 9, which is a compelling piece of scripture written long before Jesus comes to the earth in his ministry as Messiah before he dies and rises again. You are looking at something that was written down in history by God's people long before Jesus touched the earth in his earthly ministry. Now, I want to just bring you to something that's very important. If you're new to church, maybe you're a new believer. I love new believers because you get to pour all good stuff in, right? So whether you're a new believer or old believer, this is something you need to really grasp that really separates Scripture, the revelation of God, from every other man-made religion, okay? And that is the, the, I, the, um, the particular distinction between the Bible and man-made religion in the area of prophecy, now, don't get me wrong. Prophecy is something that even pagans understand. Now, what I mean by that is that people will oftentimes see in Scripture that God is declaring the, begin the end from the beginning. Now, here's what I'm saying. That God is actually speaking into history, and he's telling us his story of redemption before it actually occurs. Now, it's, it's unique according to the Bible because of this reason. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 Verses 20 through 22, it is really spectacular. God redeems his people. He brings them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They're going into the promised land. He gives them his law. And then he gives them his law according to what is just in the world. He tells them who he is, how he wants them to live with one another. He condescends and gives them graciously his law, which is an amazing thing. Because false gods don't do a lot of talking. So that was pretty awesome, right? And now here's the cool thing is that God actually protects his people from religious charlatans and con artists in specifically this area of prophecy. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22, God protects his people from charlatans and con artists by telling them basically this. And if you shall say in your heart, how should we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And he says basically this, when a prophet comes and he speaks in the name of the Lord, and the thing follows not nor comes to pass, that is the word which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You should not be afraid of him. What's that mean? God is telling his people this. You want to know if someone's from me? You want to know definitively if they actually represent the true and living God? Here's the acid test. If the prophet claims to be from me, and he says, I'm speaking for God, I'm with God, I'm on his team. And that prophet gives prophecy of the future and he fails once. He's done. False prophet revealed. The wolf's costume comes off. Okay, or sorry, the sheep's costume comes off. It's off. Now the wolf has been revealed. The prophet speaking about the future and failing even once is a false prophecy. Now I want to tell you something that should absolutely ignite in you a fire about the scriptures. You know why? Because the Bible is filled with countless prophecies. We're talking prophecy after prophecy after prophecy about the, after prophecy. And here's the thing. God is putting the veracity of his word, of this revelation. He puts the veracity of this word on the fact 
that he's going to tell you history before it happens. And if there is even one false prophecy in the entire 66 book revelation, 1500 years or so of composition, about 40 different authors, one false prophecy makes void the entire revelation based on God's own test. How you like them apples? Think about it. If you're a skeptic or critic of the Bible in here today, I would say you already know God. I would challenge you on, on, on your rejection of God. But I would say this. If you truly wanted to find sort of the Achilles heel, heel in the scriptures, it's in the area of prophecy. Because what does God say? If you have even one false prophecy, you're a false prophet. Now, consider that for a second. God in Isaiah 44, 6. Go there. Keep one finger in Daniel. And I want you to go to Isaiah 44, 6. That's to your left from Daniel. Powerful verse. A lot of you guys already know because I quote it often. 44.6. Here's what it says. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of hosts says. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Then he says, who like me can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me. Since I have established an ancient people, let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Now, now think about that for a second. What is God doing here in this? Th- this is, by the way, an ancient smackdown. Call it the ancient UFC version of God versus Baal, okay? For all you UFC fans. This is like God calling out the false gods on the mat. You know what he says? He says this. Go ahead. I'm the only God, the first and the last. There is no God besides me. Proof, have your gods, your fictitious man-made idols. Go ahead, have them tell you the future. Try it. Now that's difficult because false gods don't do a lot of talking and they're not sovereign. Now God is saying this, have your gods do this, tell you the future. Now here's the problem, they can't. And all you have to do is look at, just look at even the last hundred years of just the cults and isms that have sprung up on American soil, it's fascinating. It is really compelling to look at, say, um, Christian science. It's, it's like grape nuts. It's neither Christian nor science. Um, you look at... <laughs> okay. So, um, but Christian, you look at, look at, um, you look at Jehovah's Witnesses, the Bible, Watchtower and Tract Society. You look at all these different religions. You look at Mormonism, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's not as though these false religions representing false gods don't try to give prophecy of the future. They do. But the, see, the compelling thing is, is they give prophecy of the future and then they just keep on trucking along after it fails. How many times has a Jehovah's Witness organization failed in their prophecy in the last hundred years? Have we lost count at this point? How about in the first 50 years of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? How many times did they fail in prophecy over and over and over? And what happens? People keep continuing on as though it never happened. What was it like a year and a half or two years ago? Harold Camping of Family Radio, the false prophet, predicted that the rapture was going to occur at a specific date. There were billboards all over the world, literally, and he failed. And then when he failed, the news cameras come to his house or wherever they found him, hiding out. And then what was the deal? And he was like, we must have got it wrong. Maybe it's a little off. How about in three months? They failed. False prophets. Now, that brings me to something spectacular 
Move to your Bibles, and you're keeping a finger in Daniel 9, and move to your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. I'm bringing you to the New Testament for a, a specific reason. I want you to see what Jesus says as he enters his ministry, and it's related to the area of prophecy and the specificity by which God speaks about the coming kingdom and Messiah. You see, when God talks, as you get to Mark 1, when God talks about this Messiah that's coming and this kingdom that's coming, he doesn't give you vague, like Nostradamus-type prophecy where you can sort of like fit and squeeze anything in there. It's very malleable. You can make it sort of be whatever you want. You see, this, the specificity by which God speaks in the Old Testament tells you the who, the where, the what, the when, the why, the how of the Messiah. It tells you when he's coming, what's going what it's going to look like, how he's going to die, who he is, where he's going to be born. All these different details and contours are there. But I want you to see as we get to Daniel 9 just how specific this prophecy in Daniel is. In Mark chapter 1 in your New Testament, Gospel according to Mark, You'll see as it opens up, it's the good news of Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And you see the promise, again, a prophecy in the Old Testament is drawn in by Mark. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's verse 2. He's pulling from the Old Testament. There's going to be a messenger preparing the way before Messiah. Again, what are you getting there? Prophecy. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now listen, this is compelling because before the Messiah was to come, there was going to be a forerunner, one who was the coming Elijah, like Elijah calling the nation of Israel to repentance before the Messiah came. Now that's what Mark draws in now. Here's that prophecy fulfilled in John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin. Spoken of as one, actually spoken highly of in the first century, not just in the New Testament, but outside the New Testament documents. John the Baptist was heralded as an amazing man of God, not just in the Bible, but outside the New Testament record. Now, what's amazing here is John comes baptizing and he baptizes Jesus in the days in verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Now, get this. I need you to grab this. There are certain elements here I want you to capture and hang on to. Because let me just warn you ahead of time, this prophecy is trippy. And you're going to miss a lot and lose a lot. And I'm just a fallible man. I'm not going to be able to do everything perfectly. But believe me, there are a few things you want to grab. And this is one of them. I need you to grab the fact that John the Baptist is the promised forerunner. And he now baptizes Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. He baptizes him. Now... He baptizes him in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he, well, listen closely, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. That's saying, you're the son of my love. You are the son of my love. I take delight in you. Now watch this. Immediately a spirit, the spirit drove him into the wilderness he was in the wilderness 40 days. So there's his wilderness temptation. Now watch what happens in verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee preaching the good news of God. Listen closely. And this is what I need you to grab. He was just anointed as Messiah. Holy Spirit descends like a dove. God speaks over that moment and says, this is the son of my love. I take pleasure in him. Now he goes into the wilderness 
as the perfect Israelite, he defeats Satan in the wilderness, which is what Israel didn't do. He enters now into his ministry, Galilee, preaching the good news. And he says, listen closely, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, listen, you, you need to think for a second. All this stuff is prophecy being fulfilled. The forerunner is there. Jesus now comes into his ministry. He's baptized and presented to Israel as the Messiah. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. He goes into the wilderness, defeats Satan in this very symbolic picture of 40 days in the wilderness, which is like Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus, the perfect Israelite, does what Israel didn't do, comes into his ministry, and his words are, the time is fulfilled. And you got to ask yourselves the question, what's he talking about? What time? That's, that's, that's specific. What time? And you know, you can search the Old Testament. What's amazing here is this. You can search the Old Testament, and as you're reading it, you're like, well, there's Jesus, there's Jesus, there's Jesus, there's Jesus. Because you're looking at like particular in, um, external things. Like, for example, he's going to die. That's in the Old Testament. He's going to die for the sins of God's people. He's going to be pierced through for our transgressions. God's going to lay on him the iniquity of us all. He's going to have his hands and feet pierced. He's, his kingdom's going to come during the time of the fourth kingdom. But you ask the question, well, what is Jesus saying What does he mean by the time is fulfilled? And here's what you need to listen to. Listen closely. Is that the Old Testament tells you all the details necessary to know Jesus as Messiah, what he's going to accomplish. But you know what you can't find? You can't find anywhere in the Old Testament a timeline except in Daniel chapter 9. Now, of course, Daniel 2 tells you there's going to be four kingdoms, right? But that's a vague thing. Four kingdoms, you don't know when they're necessarily going to end or for how long. You just know four kingdoms and the Messiah comes in his. Now we know, if you've been in Apology at Church, you better know this. Four kingdoms represent Babylonian, Medo-Persian, what? Greek, Rome, and then Jesus enters in his kingdom, the time of Rome. So we know that, but listen, that's still not specific enough to say The time is fulfilled. So you know where you go to see the time line where God speaks to the actual time? You can literally count down the days until Messiah is in Daniel chapter 9. The time is fulfilled. And notice this, watch this. What happened with Jesus just three or four verses above? He was anointed before Israel as... Messiah. Now remember that. Now go to Daniel 9 and let's do it. Daniel chapter 9. Let me give you a little background because a lot of us go to Daniel 9. You're like, Jeff, I never read this before in my life. And that's okay. That's why you have a pastor. That's why you need to come together as God's people in a church to be equipped and to grow. But a little background. Listen closely. Um, as we so go ahead and switch a slide there, um, be rad. A little background. The time was ending, as Daniel 9 comes in, the time was ending for the promised 70-year captivity. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, I'm going to read it to you, okay? Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, it says this. In the year of Darius, the son 
of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was ruler over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. Now listen closely, let me draw you into this. Daniel is a Jew, and he's in Babylon in the captivity. The Jews, as a matter, listen closely, as a matter of historical record, not just in your Bibles, but as a matter of history, the Jews were taken into captivity to Babylon. Now, listen closely. This is where it's compelling. What did I say about prophets? They have to have what? Perfect prophetic fulfillment. Amen? Now, listen. Daniel knows this. He is a prophet. Okay? And he's reading in Jeremiah. So, Daniel's doing his Bible study. Okay? He's reading in Jeremiah that God had promised that he was going to put them in Babylon for 70 years. Now, he now realizes, we've been here, we've been doing the dance, we're in Babylon, and he knows now that that 70-year time period is, is up. And so Daniel now is, is in this complicated situation, emotionally, spiritually, because he's reading the captivity now is almost over, 70 years. Now, now think about how compelling that is. He knows God, made a, God has made a promise. And he knows now, as this prophet... He knows that that 70 years, based on Jeremiah's prophecy, is about up. And so what he knows is at any moment now, this exile is over. This captivity is over. And so they're getting ready to leave, but there's a problem. What's the problem? Daniel's petitioning God for his mercy because they have remained in their sin. He's, he realizes the 70 years is basically up. And we're about to get released, but there's a problem. Nobody has learned a dang thing from this. Here we are, still sinning against God. And so Daniel is now like, as kind of like in a sense a mediator, he's pleading with God, like not because of our righteous deeds, God, but because of your mercy. Because of your mercy, please like hear my petition, God. It's time is up, but we haven't learned a thing from this. Now, if you want to mark in your notes, if you want to do this, where he says the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70 in your Bibles in the first three verses of, of Daniel 9, you can mark Jeremiah 25, 8. If you want to see it with your eyes, go ahead and go see it later. Jeremiah 25, 8 was where Jeremiah prophesied that they would be in Babylon for how long, guys? Se what's that, guys? 70 years. Now, now I'm going to read this to you. Daniel's petitioning God for his mercy because they have remained in their sin. Daniel 9, now follow me guys and listen. Daniel 9, 17 through 19. Here we go. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Show your favor to your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city called by your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts but based on your abundant compassion. Now, by the way, that's awesome. That's awesome. Look at how Daniel's praying. You ever have prayers like that? Boy, I was just praying that like this week. Like, like ask, when you ask God, like you come to God, you're like, it's not because I'm righteous, God. It's not because I'm good, but because of your mercy. And isn't it nice that thousands of years ago, the Jews, are pray, the people of God are praying in the same way that we're praying today? Not because of my righteousness, God, but because of your mercy. And Daniel now knows the captivity is about up 
And he's begging God because of your mercy, because of your mercy. Nobody comes to God proud and boastful, coming to God, bragging on their props, like, look at my stuff, God, look what I've accomplished. Now will you do something? You always come to God because of his mercy, amen? And that's what Daniel's doing. So look what he says here in verse 19. He says, Lord, hear, Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Now that's Daniel 9. There's a little background. You everyone following me now? You're in Daniel. The captivity's about up. They haven't learned anything. And so now he is pleading with God for his mercy. Now listen to this. This is where it gets interesting. The angel Gabriel, third point here. The angel Gabriel, extremely reliable source of information. The angel Gabriel delivers God's prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read it to you. So if you want, you can follow in your Bibles. I'm reading out of the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible. But if you would, just kind of listen as I walk through it. I want to read the whole prophecy to you before you start to unpack it. And here it is. Verse 20. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before God, before Yahweh my God, concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. This is, by the way, let me give you a little aside there. Isn't it awesome how God's working? He's like, Daniel's like pleading with God. He's like, God, please, because mercy, God, help us, God, please. And he's just confessing and he's petitioning. He's confessing and he's like, oh, he's in agony. He's pro- please help, help, God, help. And Gabriel come and goes, uh, yeah, uh, when you started praying, like the word went out to come. So here I am. Like, like as soon as he started, but he's like in agony, like the whole time. God, please show up. Help, help. And all of a sudden, Gabriel's like, yeah, when you, like as soon as you started, like I was, I was saying, I'm coming out, I'm here. And sometimes, like you just, you know, I just want to, as, as a spiritual application of this moment, sometimes, like, you're like, God's not listening. He's not here. Like, just shut up. Like, and just, like, you, don't complain. Like, pray. It's a petition. Ask God. Sometimes the word has already gone out, and God's just waiting for his timing to answer you. Okay? So, here we go. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To bring the rebellion to an end. That's um, to finish the transgression in some of your Bibles. I like that translation a little better. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sin. To make atonement for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. Know and understand. Not just know. Understand. See, Gabriel wants you to understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince. How's that for specificity? This is about the Messiah, the prince. And the word goes out from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, listen, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. 
The people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood. And until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He, who's that? The Messiah, the prince, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Now, this is pretty spectacular. This prophecy is amazing. And listen, tonight, I want to do the heavy moments of it, the big pieces, and show the fulfillments. And probably next week, we'll do more of a timeline to show you how it all fits together. But can I just suggest to you something pretty awesome? And that's this. Now, this is a big prophecy, no doubt. Do you know we have Daniel in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls, we discovered, in, well, not we, a uh, little shepherd boy named Muhammad, uh, discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in the area of the Qumran uh, caves in the late 1940s. We have Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So far from being something that was added after the fact, in other words, this is so specific, literally to the days, Start counting here, it's going to land on Messiah. To the days. It's in Daniel, in the Dead Sea Scrolls even, we have copies. Amazing. But isn't this interesting? This is just something I, I find very, very, just incredible. Who was, who was the angel that came to Mary to announce to her the birth of the Messiah? Who? Gabriel. Isn't it awesome that Gabriel is the one that announces to Daniel, here's the 70 weeks until Messiah, and then he comes to Mary, and he's like, you're going to have a child. His name will be Yeshua. Think about that for a second. If you want to see where that's at, go to Luke real fast. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Keep a finger in Daniel 9, because we're going back and forth a lot. So have it ready. Uh, sorry, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. So you can write a connector verse right there. Gabriel's announcing to Daniel, Messiah, the prince is coming. And I think it's awesome. I, there are lots of angels, according to the Bible. I mean, lots. And they're awesome. Yes, they're awesome. They're incredible. But Gabriel has this special place. He announces to Daniel this massive, whopping prophecy of the Messiah and what he's going to accomplish in God's plan. And then he's the specific angel that comes to Mary. Now, in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. You're telling me? Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Yeshua, Jesus. He will be called, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And this is very post-millennial of Gabriel. His kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Pause, break for a second. Take your pen, underline Holy One, Holy One, Holy One. Very important. Now, 
couple things now. Let's do a basic timeline. B-Rad, next slide, please. Okay, a basic timeline that I want you to grasp for today. And this, listen, if you forget details, like in a sense of like the decree by Artaxerxes, the Persian king in the, the 5th century BC, like if you forget those details, fine. But to know the basic ones, this is important and anybody can get this. Here it is. There were 70 weeks of years 490 years to accomplish the redemptive purposes of Daniel 9.24. Now, we'll go into more details as to 70 weeks of years, what that all means. But here's the basic understanding. Ready? Daniel is told 70 weeks of seven. Now, this is very symbolic because seven is a very symbolic number to Jews. Why? Why do you think that is? The seven days of creation. We had six days God worked in creation. And the seventh day he did what? He rested. Not he rested like he was tired, right? He like took a break and like leaned on something. But God was like enjoying his creation. He completed it. He finished it. He was celebrating his creation. Seven days of creation. So to a Jew, seven is symbolic of completeness. Okay? The number seven is of completeness. Now, interestingly, You've got this seven that has so much symbolism in the 70 weeks prophecy, but it's important because what is Daniel doing? Listen closely. At the beginning of Daniel chapter nine, he knows what's the context. 70, how many years they would be where in Babylon. So what's in Daniel's mind? 70 years. And the angel tells him now you need to know this. Now, Daniel, there's going to be 70 weeks of years. That's. 70 times seven sets of seven. So 70 times seven is 490 years. And this is all going to begin to make more sense as we chop it up as we move it along. But just for now, understand 70 weeks represents a total time period of 490 years. And you're even told when to start counting. Okay, here we go. Next. There were six, how many? Six, six redemptive promises listed in Daniel nine. And if you're writing stuff down, this would be an important thing to write down. Number one, ready? First thing, to finish the transgression. Two, to make an end of sin. Three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And six, to anoint the most holy next the 70 weeks prophecy messiah the prince was to be cut off that's in verse 26 and by the way if you want to make a note in your bible this is really interesting the word cut off is a hebrew word karath it comes you can find another usage of it as a death penalty in verse set sorry in leviticus 7:20 so ready if you want to write down in your bibles next to cut off and this is very important because you got to ask a Jew. You got to ask a Jew today who, who says he's Jewish, who rejects Yeshua the Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. You got to say this in Daniel 9, it says the Messiah is going to die a violent death before the second temple is destroyed. The word is karath. Again, Leviticus 7:20, it's the death penalty word. It speaks of a violent death. Next, in the Daniel 70 week prophecy, Messiah, the prince, would make a covenant with the many for seven years. 
One week represents seven years. Seven days represents seven years. Next, Messiah the Prince will put a stop to sacrifice and offering in the middle of the seven years. I'm getting goosebumps. Sorry. As a result of the 70 weeks, the 490 years, Messiah will bring a people to destroy the the temple and the city in verse 26. Let me read to you something that I think, at least for today, will whet your appetites as to the timeline. This is um, Gary DeMar, our boy Gary DeMar. He's been on, uh, I don't know if he would like me calling him our boy, but um, he's been on Apologia Radio. He, uh, in his book, Left Behind, Separating Fact from Fiction, he quotes J. Barton Payne speaking on the 70 weeks prophecy. Now listen closely. If you're like, what's 70 weeks? What's the 490 years? Let me give you a description that DeMar draws from that I think sort of gives you an overview right now. And I think you guys will really find this interesting. Listen closely. The most noteworthy feature of Daniel's prophecy is the inspired prophetic calendar that accompanies it. Daniel predicted a lapse of 70 weeks of years or 490 years for the accomplishing of the redemptive work in Daniel 9. The beginning point would be indicated by the commandment to restore Jerusalem, an event that was accomplished a century after Daniel in the reign of the Persian Artaxerxes I, 465 to 424 BC. Under Nehemiah, Daniel then went on to predict that from this commandment to the Messiah would be seven weeks and three score and two weeks or 69 weeks of years equaling 483 years. From 458 BC, this brings one to AD 26. And guess what happened in AD 26? Jesus' baptism. When was Jesus presented before Israel as her Messiah? At his baptism. What did God speak over Jesus as he's coming out of the waters, as the forerunner is baptizing him? What does the Father speak over Jesus? This is the Son of my love. I am well pleased in him, right? And the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. That's where Jesus is presented to Israel as her Messiah. Now, don't you find it very, very cool that as soon as Jesus is presented before Israel, he conquers Satan in the wilderness. He then comes in Mark chapter one before Israel. And he says, what? The time is fulfilled. What time? The time of the 70 weeks prophecy. There were 483 years. As you break the prophecy up from the decree that goes out and as it moves forward, 483 years, it lands in AD 26. Jesus says after he's baptized, the time is fulfilled. Well, what's left, guys? If you've got 483 years done and 490 total years of a prophecy, what's left? Seven years. Isn't it interesting you got seven years left in the prophecy. Jesus is baptized, presented. He says the time is fulfilled. There's seven years left. And it says in Daniel 9, that in the midst of the week, this Messiah is going to make an end of sacrifices and offerings and be cut off and die a violent death. Well, guys, you got seven years left. Jesus begins his ministry. What happened, by the way, three and a half years after Jesus is presented in his baptism? What happened? He was crucified. And what did Jesus bring in his crucifixion? 
an end to sacrifice and offering. And what happens three and a half years after Jesus' resurrection and crucifixion? The gospel then went from the Jews to the Gentiles. I like them apples. And that's just barely scratching the surface. Okay. Now I'll read the rest of it. The very time which many would accept for the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Christ and the commencement of his incarnate ministry. Verses 26 and 27 then describe how in the midst of the final week, that is of the last seven year period, and therefore the spring of AD 30, he would bring to an end the Old Testament economy of his death, which is what I just told you here. There could hardly have been a more miraculously accurate prediction than this. The 490 years then conclude with the three and a half years that remain during which period the testament was to be confirmed to Israel. So if you think about it for a second, this 490 year period encompasses something though. And this is what I want to get us to. The most important part today is to describe what's in the prophecy. Now listen, if you look at your Bibles in Daniel 9, this is where I want you to follow me. Daniel chapter 9, there's really one verse today that I need you to hang on. This is the verse, ready? Verse 24, go ahead and look at it. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Go to it, look at it, right there. This is the big portion from what Gabriel reveals to Daniel that I need you to kind of grasp. It says this, 70 weeks, which represent what, everybody? 490 years. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And here are the, the parts I want you to get. Be rad, next slide. Here we go. Number one, to finish the transgression. Two, to make an end of sin. Three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Four, to bring an everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And six, to anoint the most holy. And here we go. Let's talk about the first one. To finish the transgression. The finishing of the transgression is something that is connected to the very thing that, Ga- that uh, Daniel's praying about. Listen, what if you read your Old Testament, doesn't it just, doesn't it stumble you at times or trip you out at times where Israel is like the chosen people of God by his grace. He takes these people, he rescues them from their slavery. There's like the plagues in Egypt that are just stinking awesome sauce. Like all the things that God does, locusts, frogs, cows die, waters to blood, Red Sea, booyah, crossing, walking through it. The enemies coming to chase them and then getting washed out by the flood. It's amazing. It's amazing. And you look at Israel and you're like, what is your deal? How can you do that? Like, it's like, you know, like Moses is gone just like a couple days. And he comes down and they're like, down there like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, like celebrate when like some golden calf. Like, what's your deal? Seriously. And, you know, you do that at times. You think about like, man, they're like constantly doing this. And then like God sends Jeremiah, God sends Ezekiel, God sends Isaiah, God sends Daniel. It's like just constantly like God's, the Israelites are like constantly persecuting God's people. He sends them a prophet. They're like, eh, and they're like stoning them, like throwing them into like a pit. And you're like, what's your deal? And they're constantly doing this. God's prophets are coming and they're like killing them, stoning them. They never listen. And so like they're they're Now God says, you're going to Babylon for 70 years. At the end of the 70 years, you'd be like, they learn from it. They get it. They're finally there. And what's Daniel doing? He's like, God, they haven't learned a thing. (laughs) Help me, right? And so now Gabriel comes and says the 70 years is to finish the transgression. What's that mean? It's to bring to the final culmination Israel's sin against God. 
It's the final breaking point. It's where the teapot has finally, on the stove, has finally cracked that boiling point and starts whistling. This is what you're looking for now. To finish the transgression is the peak of it. It's the finishing of the transgression. It's where God finally allows their sin to hit the breaking points. That's what it's describing. The the 490 years is where God's going to bring their transgression to a finishing end. And to see it, to see it with your eyes, a couple verses. Go to Matthew chapter 21. Keep your finger in Daniel though. Keep your finger in Daniel because we're going back. Matthew chapter 21. Now, guys, that's, if you guys are new to the Bible, that's the very first book in your New Testament. Matthew chapter 21. That's the very first book in your New Testament. Just find where the old and new divide. Okay, Matthew chapter 21. And go to verse 37. Now, Jesus, I, here, I'm not going to do the whole prophecy here because of, of time. But you can read it later, starting at verse 33. Now, Jesus here gives a parable of an owner of a vineyard. Now, in the parable, Jesus is really describing Israel, okay, of the first century. Jerusalem, essentially, it's going to kill him. Now, what he does in the parable is he tells him, like, hey, there's a vineyard owner, and he, you know, he has this vineyard, and, like, he's leased it out to these, you know, vine growers, and, and he keeps trying to get the produce from the vineyard, but what happens is they keep, like, killing one, stoning another. Like, they're just, like, constantly, like, they're not giving it up. And so what finally happens... In verse 37 is, finally he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, Jesus is telling them this parable. They said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, this is the question Jesus asks them. Listen closely. Think about the atmosphere. They know he's talking about them. In a moment. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these farmers, to those farmers? Verse 41, here's their their response to Jesus. He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease out his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his produce of the harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Listen to what Jesus says to first century Israel. Listen, he says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. Look in verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Now listen, Jesus is telling them the vineyard owner is constantly sending people to get the fruit from the harvest and they keep rejecting him. So the vineyard owner says, I'll give my son. He'll go and they'll respect him. And then Jesus says, they take him, throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him. And Jesus says, what's the vineyard owner going to do when he finds out? And they say, he's going to kill him. And Jesus says, that's right. And the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to another. Jesus is displaying, this is it. The final culmination, the finishing of the transgression is where God sends his son to his people and his people kill him. Now, another verse you need to see, just it related to this, is move over, same book, Matthew, just go to Matthew 23 now. And look, it's, it's, it's like this amazing climax. It, it is. It, I mean, it really is. Read Matthew. It's like, 
it's it's just it's just getting bigger and it's getting bigger and it's getting bigger until finally pop in Matthew 24 and 23 Jesus finally lays it down and here's what he says in Matthew chapter 23 in verse 20 verses 29 through 38 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them and shed in the prophets' blood. You therefore testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Now, ready, guys? Pens ready? This is where you start writing down and underlining or start highlighting with your iPhones or whatever gadgets you got. Ready? Verse 32, fill up then the measure of your father's sin. Jesus is saying, you say you wouldn't be like them and look what you're doing. So fill up the measure of your father's sin. You get what he's saying? Fill it up, guys. This is where it's coming to its culmination. The finishing of the transgression right here. Snakes, brood of vipers. How can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will flog in your synagogues and hound from town to town. So, ready? Listen closely. Pens pens ready, guys. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, I assure you all these things will be on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Wait a minute. Wait a tick. Wait a minute. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Move there quickly. Keep a finger in Matthew 23. Look at the terminology. The finishing of the transgression. 70 weeks, 490 years to finally finish the transgression. Israel's sins are going to come to the breaking point now. They've killed God's prophets and people and now they're killing his son. And Jesus is telling them, All the blood of the righteous from the first until the last is going to be upon this generation. And he talks about the desolation. And if you look in your Bibles at the last part, verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9, and the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. He promised it because it was expected. So to finish the transgression very clearly, very clearly is Israel's sins coming to their climax. And the last thing I'll point you to on this point alone is Matthew 27. Just now move over to Matthew 27 in your Bibles. I told you you'd need your pens today. Matthew 27. Now this is actually, I think, one of the most frightening moments for Israel in her history. Matthew 27 in verse 15. This you already know, most of you. If you've seen the movie, the passion of the Christ. You have this image in your mind of that moment where Pilate comes before God's people. He comes before the leaders of Jerusalem. They've brought now this Messiah who's been torn and tattered and bloodied. He's a mess. He's destroyed physically. And you know the scene where Pilate brings him before the people. And this is what happens in Matthew 27. Starting in verse 15, it says this. At the festival 
the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Mashiach? For he knew they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. Now, here we go, guys. Daniel 9 says that in the 70 weeks, there would be a finishing of the transgression. Israel's sin would come to its breaking point. It would finish the transgression by killing God's son on a tree. And here is what it says. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, what should I then do with Jesus, who is called Mashiach? They all answered, crucify him. Then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting, crucify him all the more. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves and everybody, here it is. All the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. The finishing of the transgression was where Israel finally did the ultimate. The owner of the vineyard sent his son and they took him out of the vineyard and they killed him. It was where they said to Pilate, his blood, the son of God, be on us and our children. And brothers and sisters, you must see that Jesus' death and resurrection, about 30 AD, God gave Israel about a 40-year period, a generation to repent. And it was in 70 AD that the Roman armies of Titus, after a three-and-a-half-year war with the Jews, utterly demolished the temple, the city, the sanctuary. They slaughtered tens of thousands of Jews Josephus said the blood was so deep it was like a river running through the streets and the Jews who were left were sent into exile and the kingdom of God was taken away from them and given to a nation to produce its fruits. And you today, brothers and sisters, represent the fulfillment of the promise in Daniel chapter 9 that the finishing of the transgression would occur with Israel in that 490 year period when Israel said his blood be upon us and our children. Daniel chapter 9 promised that Israel would finish the transgression, and it happened. It happened. Now, ready? We'll do one more for today, and it's a good way to end today. Believe me, it is. Remember, there were how many points in verse 24 of Daniel 9? How many major redemptive promises? How many? Six. The finishing the transgression we know occurred when the people of God, the covenant people of Israel, murdered the Son of God on a tree. And they said, his blood will be on us and our children. Now, the next promise was this in Daniel 9, 24, that in this 490 year period, that God would make an end of sin. Now, listen, that is not 
small potatoes. Do you understand? That is like the whole deal. That's like everything. The whole thing. It's almost like, like if you had just one prophecy alone in the entire Bible that you had to like grab and like put in front of somebody to say, here, look, like that's God. It's right here in Daniel chapter nine. Because how does your Bible open? How does the revelation open? What? God says he creates man and woman, his image. And then what happens? They break covenant with God. Death enters the human race. Sin enters. And so Adam and Eve are broken in fellowship with God, sent out of his presence, away from God. They broke covenant. God promises in the Messiah to reverse death. But when Daniel says, sorry, when Gabriel says that one of the promises here in this 490 year period is that God is going to make an end of sin. Um, what else is there? That's like the whole deal. That's like everything. He's going to make an end of sin. Now that's again, not a minor issue. That wraps up the whole revelation. Your Bible is like, it's like moving along through history and all these redemptive stories and all these dress rehearsals with the temple, the priesthood, the animal sacrifices. You've got all these prophets speaking specific prophecies about this one who's coming. And then all of a sudden, Gabriel says in Daniel 9, end of sin, baby. That's my word, but that's it, (laughs) right? End of sin, done. Now listen, this has to occur in this 490-year period. Do you understand that? So you say to a Jew today, hey, where's your Messiah? Because that 490-year period is over. It's over. And you know what? There is no chance, no possibility of anyone ever coming today or ever and saying, I'm the Messiah. It's done. The timeline is complete. The temple is gone. The time is complete. End of sin had to be made in that 490-year period. And isn't it? awesome that it was jesus accomplishes redemption he makes an end of sin and you already know this but think about it for a second that isaiah 53 this is long before jesus comes about 700 years before daniel by the way before daniel before daniel isaiah 53 promises the messiah is going to come that god is going to lay on him the iniquity of us all that he be pierced through for our transgressions that by his wounds will be healed that he was going to die and that he was going to see his seed. He'd, he'd be resurrected. That God was going to count, ready, him among the rebels. And that he would justify the many because he would bear their iniquities. Now listen, that's before Gabriel comes to Daniel. Okay? And now Daniel's told by Gabriel, end of sin in this time period, end of sin after they finish the transgression, end of sin. John chapter 19. And I, I'm, only, I'm only sending you there because all of you know this by heart. You do, even if you're new to church. I know you know this. If you don't, you're going to know it right now, permanently. John chapter 19. I want you to have a reference to Mark next to Daniel 9. This would be helpful, by the way, guys, because you need to use this for witnessing, Right? Like, get your Bible like, and write down these verses so you can walk somebody through this. In John 19, verse 30. Jesus, you know the scene, has been tortured and he's been maimed. His back has been opened up to the degree 
that he probably had organs exposed. He carried this wooden cross along this road to the place of the skull where he was nailed to the cross through essentially his wrist and his ankle. He's hanging there. He's suffocating. can't breathe. Now, it says in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Whatever could that mean? It is finished. Was that God had promised this Messiah was coming and that God would lay on him the iniquity of us all. That God would accomplish in one sacrifice an end of sin. Notice in Daniel 9 also, you can't forget that Daniel 9 also promises that God in this prophecy is promising that the Messiah, the prince, is going to come, he's going to die a violent death, and he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering and make an end of sin. And it's the testimony of all the scriptures that Jesus is a better priest, a better sacrifice than anything that ever came before. It was all only pointing to him. The priesthood in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. The temple in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says the, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. And why is that? Ready? Sacrifice a billion bulls. They're not made in God's image. You are in God's image. I am in the image of God. You can kill every goat in the whole world from this day to the end. It's not going to wash away any of your sins. Every animal you kill, all the blood that you spill to demonstrate the innocent for the guilty sacrifice will ultimately never take away any sin. What was God doing in the Old Testament? All of those things were simply dress rehearsals. They were practices for the big day. Right? I mean, you ever like, anybody ever do theater arts? I was, I was a thespian. I was. I love, I love the theater. I loved acting. I love, I love, I love it. And in and, and, and reality, I mean, it, uh, I went overseas uh, to do a Mortal Kombat, the live tour. And uh, when we got there, we got loaded in. They have like a... The whole crew going in is like a multi-million dollar stage production. They have like laser lights and crazy, like moving stages and trampolines like built in for flipping and crazy tricks. And like, it was a big deal. This like huge opera house, this famous opera house. It was like a, it was an amazing thing. Our pictures are plastered all over Buenos Aires in Argentina. You know, Mortal Kombat, it's everywhere. Like we were like superstars overseas. It was a big deal. But we got in there and we did like the first run through. Like we're just doing practice. There's stage crew like walking past us as we're practicing our fight scenes and we're doing our, our lines. The whole show was in Spanish. So, but, 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 here's the deal. Like I didn't know you, I didn't, I didn't know you spoke Spanish. Um, but uh, the whole show was in Spanish, but like it was like um, pre-recorded. So we basically were on stage like lipping it. So I just memorized like the line before my line in Espanol so that I could like, all we did, we just said watermelon, peas and carrots on stage. <laughs> So as it was talking, watermelon, peas, and carrots, watermelon, peas, and carrots, watermelon, peas, and carrots. That was what we did. Anyway, sorry. So, so we're, that's what we were saying on stage. Or we were usually saying, so what do you want to do tonight? I don't know what you want to do tonight. Where are you going to hang out? What do you want to eat for lunch? That's what we were doing on stage. Just a little insight to what happens on the stage in the theater. Um, so, uh, 
So we're doing the, the, the dress rehearsals take place like the first one, you're just talking, practicing, stage crews are going everywhere, but like you're just sort of like walking through the lines and then they're like, all right, dress rehearsal. And then it's like serious because it's just getting ready for the real deal. The dress rehearsals, you're just putting, you're making mistakes, like you're, you know, everything's just sort of like halfway, you're, you're missing lines, you're, you're getting hit in the head with a nunchuck or something like, you know, something's going wrong. But then everyone knows the dress rehearsals, not the real deal. No one's really watching. You can blow it. No one really cares. It's not the deal. But the day of the real show, everything was on. Everything was in place. Everything was ready. Everything was leading up to that moment where it was the real show. And in your Bible, the temple, the sacrifices, the priests, all that was, was God displaying to the world what he was really going to accomplish to end sin in this Messiah. And I want to show you a verse to go to, and we're done on this. Hebrews, I want you to see it. Hebrews chapter 10. Because Daniel 9 promises that in this 490-year period, God, after they finish the transgression, is going to make an end of sin. And I want you to see it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Hebrews 10, verse 1. Now, a little background. What you're reading right now? is written before the fall of the temple. When was the temple destroyed, guys? When? Seven, you guys are going to learn to know that forever. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. What you're reading right now was written during a time of great persecution, and there were serious risks of people abandoning Christ to go back to temple. Why? Because the Jews who were Christians were saying, it's done, end of sin. The Messiah has come. He was the ultimate sacrifice. It's done. And yet, the temple's still standing there. They're still doing their stuff. And like Jesus promised, before they all died, that thing's getting destroyed. And lots of Jews who believed in Jesus, supposedly, were now abandoning faith in Messiah to go back to temple. And the writer of Hebrews says, it's about to go away. And it was just a matter of years before it did. But listen closely. Verse 1, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the actual form of those realities... It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers once purified would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. In other words, guys, every year the priest went in to offer Yom Kippur, the sacrifice, every year you're like, sinner, sinner, remember, 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 look at your sins. Look what I have to do to the scapegoat. Look what I have to do to this go. Go in the temple. Every year they're like, oh, there is no end to my sin. No end. Every year, continually reminded. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. After he says above, you did not want or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will of God, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. 
But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, and here's where I need you to listen. Pause and take it in. I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer an offering of sins. He made an end of sins. Amen? Now you have to just, whoa, that is incredible. They finished their transgression within that time period. Jesus made an end of sins. He's the righteous one. He's the holy one. He's the perfect lamb of God. He's the sacrifice. You know what's great? I told you about the bulls and the goats and everything else. Never take away your sin. But Jesus, he's God and he's man. How come Jesus can represent you? Because he's man and he's God. And that death on the cross, receiving from the Father the death penalty and the wrath of the Father against all your sin and all my sin was worthy of an eternal sacrifice that never ends. It was one sacrifice, once for all. There is no more need of temple, earthly temple, no more need of earthly priest, no more need of any sacrifice. Your sins and my sins ended on that tree 2,000 years ago. And Daniel 9 promised it. Gabriel said... These six things are going to happen. And we just touched two. So come back for the exciting conclusion. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. It's amazing. God is amazing. You are, you are amazing, God. There's just no way, God, to express in words how unbelievable this is. God, I know it's up to you to open the eyes of the blind and that no one's ever really going to even care to see this if you don't open our eyes. But Lord, we're your sheep. We hear your voice. And Lord, we think it is awesome. Thank you so much, God, for telling us ahead of time what you were going to do. Thank you, Jesus, that you are unquestionably, without a doubt, the Messiah, the Prince. You made an end of sin. You brought everlasting righteousness. Lord, you put an end to sacrifice and offering. Jesus, you are the fulfillment. We confess it. You are Lord of all. You died, you rose, we trust you, and now we come to worship you in your name. Amen.